Hey, everybody. So next episode of ICU Fundamentals, we're going to do another deep dive. And this deep dive is actually going to be in a couple different parts that'll be scattered throughout the next couple months, because this is going to be a deep dive into one of my favorite topics that's also one of the most controversial topics in critical care is now has been for years, and that is fluid resuscitation. And we are doing this now because everybody, including me, has been very focused on vents, vents, and more vents. But this is something that you are probably doing with every single COVID patient, maybe. And this is something that's actually quite complicated that we do all the time. And it turns out getting it right is probably important. So firstly, just to clarify, big picture, we have two true goals of fluid administration. And I think it's really useful to separate these two things in your head, because if you conflate them, then you end up messing up one of them while trying to fix the other one. So the two goals of giving fluids to patients are either or both, you want to one, correct their intravascular volume quantity, or two, you want to correct their intravascular volume composition. So in the case of number one, I'm saying I think they're hypovolemic, they're bleeding to death, they're dehydrated, they're having massive diarrhea. I believe that the intravascular volume quantity is insufficient. However, what if I have a patient who has all kinds of complicated electrolyte things? They're hypernatremic and hypocalcemic and hypoglycemic. I also then need to think about how am I going to use IV fluids and electrolytes to correct their intravascular volume composition. Today, we are just going to talk about the first one. We're going to talk about the second one at some point later, because that's when we get into selection of which fluid do you want, the great albumin debate. It'll be lots of fun. But for today, we are just going to focus on the volume quantity. Okay. So turns out if we're thinking about intravascular volume quantity, it's all about this concept of this, to me, kind of wild goose chase that medicine has been going on for oh, well over a century about predicting volume status. And it's one of those things that we literally do every single day. I bet every single time, literally every time you walk into the ED, you do this at least once per shift if not 15 times per shift, where you say, well, I think this patient's hypervolemic and that one's hypovolemic. It's also one of the things that doctors can be very sure about, like definitely that one's volume down. Turns out, actually, we have no idea, mostly in the wild guess category. And so what we're going to do first is just put this whole thing in context, because this is one of the most controversial topics, not just in critical care, but in all of medicine. And the pendulum on this has been swinging all over the place. I remember when I was a med student and I was getting told, no worries, you know you've given them enough fluids when you have to intubate them. Okay, so we went through a period where fluids were amazing. They fixed everything. They're wonderful. And now the pendulum is starting to swing the other direction, where now there's a camp of fluids are actually evil, just kidding, not great, don't give fluids, kind of almost ever. I think, like most things, the real answer is probably somewhere in between. And I don't usually start out my lectures this way, but I have to tell you that I got to start this lecture by telling you, I don't know the answer. Is there a right answer out there somewhere? Maybe, maybe but I truly do not know the right answer to this right now. 
And so rather than trying to convince you that I have some magic solution or a magic algorithm that if you simply follow that, you'll do the right thing, I really can't say that because I don't know yet. Maybe a year from now, 10 years from now, there'll be enough knowledge and there'll be enough evidence and there'll be enough understanding of the physiology that I can say, cool, I got this. I know the answer. Let me tell you what to do for sure, but not right now. Because it turns out, as with all of our deep dive topics, but this one in particular, it's complicated. And what has made a complicated topic even more complicated is the advent of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, which has taken this enormously controversial, enormously complex topic to start and then tried to do a one-size-fits-all solution. And that has taken this from a complicated topic to what I would call a rapidly controversial topic. Because what the Surviving Sepsis Campaign decided is that there is a magic number. And that magic number is all patients who need fluids, who are septic, should get, ta-da, 30 cc's per kilo. That's the magic number. Turns out that's not the magic number. We have no idea what the magic number is. And frankly, the answer is there probably isn't a single magic number that makes sense for both your 89-year-old with multiple medical problems, heart failure, renal failure, and pneumonia, as well as your 19-year-old with urosepsis. Why we think that automatically there's one number that's right for both those patients, no idea, but probably not. And so we are going to take a moment and go to Einstein, which everything should be made as simple as possible, which is what we're trying to do in this series overall. Yes, good but no simpler. And I think what's happened is that surviving sepsis has tried to take a very complicated topic and just make it way simpler than it absolutely could possibly make it made to be. And the idea is that I get what they're trying to do. They're trying to say that on average, we'll do better if we give everybody an algorithm, follow it, cool. Um, I have to take a little disclaimer here and tell you that I have a bias, which is I don't love algorithms, personally. That being said, I think whenever you're looking at an algorithm, despite your personal philosophy on medicine and algorithms, you always have to critically ask yourself to follow or not to follow. Don't just blindly say, aha, well, somebody said this was an algorithm in these guidelines, so definitely let's do that thing. I think that instead we should at least think about whether we should follow an algorithm. And my personal feeling is that in some areas of medicine, algorithms can be great. I think that there are some areas where we actually do do better by having clear algorithms and following them. I just don't think critical care is one of them because unfortunately, it turns out, critical care is kind of complicated. And so simply, instead of algorithms, I would suggest the following approach, which simply involves doing thinking. And this especially applies to fluid resuscitation, because as we said, it's complicated. And not only is it complicated, it's really, really complicated. I think there's few things in medicine that we do as frequently with this degree of complication. And as I said, I don't have a definitive answer for you to this complicated question today. But at the same time, we kind of need to make clinical decisions about it every day anyways. So... Rather than me trying to convince you that I have the right approach to fluid resuscitation, instead, I'm going to tell you about what I do, which is what I think is a reasonable approach based on the data I have available to me and the current understanding of the physiology. 
And so here is my philosophy on a reasonable approach to fluid resuscitation, which simply states, I believe that optimizing volume status is one component of what should be an iterative, hypothesis-directed approach to restoring tissue perfusion. That is my take on this. And fluids can be a great thing. They can also be a terrible thing. It depends if you're using them thoughtfully and intelligently. And to that end, we're going to include another quote, one of my favorite quotes, which is, I think we ought to always entertain opinions with some measure of doubt. I shouldn't wish people to dogmatically believe any philosophy, not even mine. One of my favorite quotes, and this is what I would say to you guys about watching this lecture, is that, am I sure that I'm 100% right? Absolutely not. And I don't want you guys to watch this lecture, go home and say, we shall do this simply because Sarah says so. I don't want you to do that. I want you to think about it, process it, and then think independently and apply what you think is useful when you're taking care of patients. So we're going to start with a couple of highlights from the evidence milieu that is surrounding this very controversial question. Um, and the goal today is not actually for me to do a comprehensive review of all of the evidence surrounding fluids, because that would take many, many hours. In addition, multiple people have already done that. There's some really great blog posts on IMCRIT in particular about this question that really takes a deep dive into the details of the evidence. That's not what we're trying to do. I'm just trying to give you guys a sense for the shape of some of that evidence to give you a context for questioning this algorithm. Why? Because surviving sepsis has made it so that, at least in the U.S., we are being pushed hard to give fluids. And if you need to talk to your team, your nurses, other physicians about why you're not, you need to have some kind of context for doing something that may go against the grain of what you're being told to do. So let's talk a little bit about surviving sepsis. This is their take on fluid resuscitation. We recommend that initial fluid resuscitation begin with 30 cc's per kilo of crystalloid. Okay? Although little literature includes controlled data to support this volume of fluid, recent interventional studies have described this as usual practice, and observational evidence supports this practice. What I have to say about this is yet another Bertrand Russell quote which is the fact that an opinion has been widely held is no evidence whatever that it is not utterly absurd. And I think as much as like in medicine, we feel like we're very rational, we're very evidence-based, we're really not. If you look on the evidence about how physicians deal with evidence, we're terrible, right? We are still doing things that are decades behind what we now know and I think that there's just a lot of pressure, especially on this fluids question, to do a lot of things that really are now not only not based in evidence, but not even based in physiology. But let's talk briefly about what they mean when they say observational evidence that supports the practice of 30 cc's per kilo. So they cite a couple studies. These are the main ones. These are the cited observational evidence, quote unquote, supporting fluids in sepsis cited by surviving sepsis. One, an intensive care medicine article from 2010, which the main finding was no association between CVP of greater than eight and mortality. What that has to do with giving fluids and 30 cc's per kilo, no idea. Okay, next one. Crit care medicine article from 2015, which showed that the combined outcome in fluids and pressors was associated with improved mortality. 
So if you don't let the patient be hypotensive, they do better? I think that's what we're saying here. Okay. And lastly, this one sounds good at first. So this study, 2017, Crit Care Med, early fluid association was associated with decreased mortality in sepsis, which sounds fabulous until you keep reading and find out that 95% of the early fluids group got early antibiotics and only 65% of the late fluids group got early antibiotics. So we have just determined that antibiotics given earlier seem to be good in sepsis. I have no idea what any of this means about fluids, certainly not a specific amount for all patients. Okay, now let's take a brief detour and look at some of the prospective randomized controlled trial data, notably not cited in the CMS recommendations and surviving sepsis, that gets into this. Because honestly, these aren't necessarily perfect studies. They're not necessarily fabulous studies. But at least we have some kind of randomized controlled trial data as opposed to all of this data, which is all observational, most of it not even prospective. And so from a quality of evidence point of view, let's at least see what the randomized controlled trial data tells us. So a couple of highlights here. New England Journal article, 2011. This was a prospective randomized controlled trial. And what they found is that fluid administration actually increased 48-hour and 28-day mortality. This was the FEAST trial. Now, there's a caveat here, which is that this trial was done mainly in African children who were septic. So how that applies to my patient right next to me in the emergency department, I don't know. Can I generalize that? Not necessarily. That being said, to date, this is probably the best designed study that has ever been done that's a randomized, multi-center, randomized control trial on fluid resuscitation. And so even though I don't think I can really necessarily generalize it from a quality standpoint, that's probably some of the best evidence we have. And in that paper, fluids actually increased mortality as opposed to no fluids. Next, we have a JAMA article from 2017. Bottom line for this article, also prospective randomized controlled trial, and they found increased hospital mortality with protocolized fluid resuscitation versus just the treating clinician being like, I'm going to do whatever I think I'm going to do. So a protocol that forced them to give X amount of fluid, which ended up being a lot more than the treating physician did, also found increased mortality. Now, of note, this was also done in a resource-poor setting. So to what extent can I apply that to the patient next to me when I'm in Los Angeles? I don't know. Also, most of these patients had HIV. So again, we have a generalizability issue here. But from a study quality and design standpoint, this is much better evidence than most of the evidence cited in surviving sepsis. Lastly, just came out 2019, another prospective randomized controlled trial. This one found that there was really no difference in 30-day mortality between fluid-restrictive versus liberal protocols. But then if you dig deep into it, the restrictive group got 47 cc's per kilo in the first 72 hours, which doesn't actually sound all that restrictive to me. So I don't know how 47 cc's per kilo is that much better than 61 cc's per kilo. I don't really know. The bottom line is the evidence is all over the place. But to me, the evidence that we have for fluids is certainly not stronger than the evidence we have against them. And this opinion was stated and set out in a lovely article, one of my favorite articles that I read in the last couple of years. This was an Annals of Internal Medicine article looking at 
all of the data that could be used to support the recommendations of the CMS government-mandated recommendations for sepsis, mainly fluids, and trying to figure out, is this actually evidence-based in any kind of meaningful way? So they did a deep dive, reviewed all the literature, and concluded that they could not any identify any high or even moderate level evidence showing that a 30cc kilo per bolus actually improved mortality. This paper is my favorite because of the sentence at the end. Um, now, keep in mind that this isn't a very sort of fancy medical journal where they tend to have very formal language, and um, but it contains this sentence, which I really enjoyed. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services should examine its performance measures approval process to determine how it adopted interventions lacking evidence meeting the agency's own criteria. Wow. Like, you don't really just say that in journal articles. It's not really a thing, but wow. And again, this just underlies how controversial and how upset people get about this issue. Very controversial. Now, this paper came out and Surviving Sepsis decided to respond. They did a rebuttal. And I actually found the rebuttal almost as interesting as the original paper. It was very, very short. The key things from the rebuttal were as follows. We were alarmed by Pepper and colleagues' inaccuracies and misrepresentations, not about the data supporting fluids and sepsis, but about the role of SEP1 in CMS quality reporting programs. As long as a hospital reports its data, even if none of its patients with sepsis were actually treated with SEP1 interventions, the hospital would not be penalized. And what is fascinating about this rebuttal is that they don't even try and make an attempt to argue that there is a bunch of evidence that actually contradicts the evidence that the first paper talked about. Their entire thing is essentially, yeah, but we're not saying you have to follow the recommendations technically. That was very interesting. Finally, if you want to see a good review of this that I think is very balanced and very thoughtful, this is a good one to read. And I think that they sum this up in a balanced way, which is, overall, the belief that dehydration and hypovolemia can cause or worsen kidney and other vital organ injury has resulted in liberal approaches to fluid therapy and the view that fluid overload and tissue edema are normal during critical illness. This is quite possibly harming patients, and increasing evidence indicates that restrictive fluid strategies might improve outcomes. Interesting, thoughtful, very different than what you would have been reading 10 or 15 years ago. So, going back, to me, based on all available evidence that I have, I don't really feel like this makes any sense whatsoever, honestly. Now, I'm not saying fluids are evil. I'm not saying fluids are good. I'm just saying that I think that trying to make this into an algorithm, that we should say this one particular dose of fluids is the right thing and everybody and all septic patients should get at the end, in the category of to follow or not to follow, for me, this falls squarely into the we should do thinking instead category. As such, now we're going to talk about what I hope is a reasonable approach to fluid resuscitation. Ten years from now, we may watch this lecture again and be like, wow, she's an idiot. That makes no sense. But given what we know right now, I hope this is somewhat reasonable. And again, said approach says, optimizing volume status is a component of an iterative hypothesis-directed approach to restoring tissue perfusion. So first, let's answer a very basic question. What are we trying to accomplish 
with fluid resuscitation? And more importantly, what aren't we trying to accomplish? And I think that this gets very conflicting and very conflated. Why? Because in 17 different ways, we are operating, we're practicing clinically in an environment where we have these really robust incentive structures that encourage us to preferentially decide to give IV fluids versus not giving them. Incentive number one, if my patient's hypotensive and I give some IV fluids, I don't have to put in a central line. That's a pain. They could get infected. It takes time. I may not have a central line kit. So yeah, incentive to choose fluids, not because I think fluids are better than pressors in this patient, but it's easier because I don't have to put in a central line. Number two, if I give fluids over pressors, I don't have to make that really annoying call to the ICU. I don't have to deal with it. In fact, you know what's probably going to happen at most places, certainly at a lot of places I've been? If you make the call to the ICU and you're like, hey, this patient's still a little hypotensive, so I put them on a little low-dose norepi. Can they just, you know, whatever, hang out in the ICU for a while till this gets better? They're probably going to say, give them some more fluids and see if the blood pressure gets better. That's probably what they're going to say. So that's incentive number two. And finally, as I have discovered multiple times now, if you give a whole bunch of fluids, you are very much less likely to get angry emails from administrators who are trying to explain to you that you should be following the sepsis guidelines, whether or not they make sense. Okay. So we are just operating overall in an incentive structure that encourages us to give IV fluids independent of whether that is a clinical decision that makes sense. I think thing number two, that I said this about vents and I'll say this about fluids, and I would say even more so about fluids. You have to get it through your head that making the number pretty is not the same thing as making the patient better. And I think this gets us in trouble all the time because it seems like the ha, the map is 65 rather than 60 now. That's my cutoff number. I've made the patient better, definitely. Or my urine output was low. I don't like that number. I'm going to do something to make that number better, probably give fluids. And I think this gets really tricky because often, especially with things like urine output, for example, that's one of the reasons people very often give fluids. Or maybe the lactate's high, so they'll give fluids for that. And they're trying to sort of do whatever they need to do to make that number better without really thinking about making the patient better. And so instead, we should kind of reverse this and say, how do I make the patient better? What numbers are telling me that the patient is not doing better? And overall, do I think I'm making the patient better? Now, one of the key things why this is really difficult to do in the case of sepsis, shock, and fluid administration is because I think that we all have this idea that systemic hemodynamics, so blood pressure, heart rate, cardiac output stroke volume, is necessarily one-to-one wetted with tissue perfusion. That makes intuitive sense to us. If we fix the systemic hemodynamics, if the blood pressure gets better and the heart rate gets better and the cardiac output gets better and the O2 saturation gets better, we sort of mentally have decided, cool, that means we fixed it. It means that we're all good. We must be perfusing the tissues better. And it turns out, again, It's complicated. It's not that simple. And I think the first thing that you need to do in order to really be thoughtful about fluids in sepsis or fluid administration in general is just de-link those two concepts. That hemodynamic stability, 
meaning macrohemodynamic parameters improving doesn't necessarily mean that your tissue perfusion is also improving. So thinking about this, we're going to go back to the shock lecture for just a minute. We have our macrocirculation. All of the parameters are MAP, our cardiac output, our SVR, our CVP. That's our macrocirculation. Then we have our microcirculation. This is where the magic happens. These are the arterioles, the capillaries, the venules. This is how your tissues get oxygen and nutrients and all those other cool things that they kind of want to need. So your macrocirculation, that's your systemic hemodynamics, and your microcirculation, this is your tissue perfusion. And that's kind of the one that we care about, right? Like the whole idea between optimizing your macrocirculatory parameters is that you are making the assumption that by doing so, you will improve tissue perfusion. And that seems great. It's a lovely idea. I certainly felt better when I thought that was a thing. Unfortunately, again, it's probably not that simple. This is a really interesting paper that came out a couple years ago, um, and it's talking about the concept of what this author is calling hemodynamic coherence. The bottom line of this article is as follows. Microcirculatory alterations are associated with adverse outcomes in a manner that seems to be independent of systemic hemodynamic variables. So think about what that means for just a second. Basically, what we are saying is that you could have the nice situation where we have good macrocirculatory parameters. Blood pressure is getting better, our heart rate looks good, our cardiac index is great, and that in fact does correlate, that is in fact coherent with our microcirculation, that at the same time our microcirculation is also getting better. These two things are the same. Wonderful. That can absolutely happen and often does. However, you cannot and should not make that assumption because it is also possible that you're in the following situation. Your macrocirculation is doing great. All your numbers look fabulous, but your microcirculation, not so much. Because especially in the ICU, especially with so much of the cool stuff we can do in the ICU, I can often play a bunch of tricks with pressors and this and fluids and that to try and get my macrocirculatory numbers looking really good. But then I start looking at my tissue perfusion. And even though my map is amazing, my lactate is a million, my base excess is negative a thousand, I'm not perfusing this patient. Something's wrong. So you cannot assume that just because you fix the blood pressure means you fixed tissue perfusion. The best example of this is probably when patients get treated for hemorrhagic shock by vasopressors. So if you totally missed the boat and decided that this patient who actually has hemorrhagic shock has, I don't know, say, cardiogenic shock. So instead of, you know, giving them blood, you give them a bunch of pressors. And by giving them a bunch of pressors, you can make their blood pressure look really pretty. And this has happened to me multiple times. I come in in the morning and my sign out is, oh, that patient's doing great. Their blood pressure is fine. Everything's fine. And then it turns out that they're maxed out on three pressors. And yes, all my macrocirculatory numbers look great. But then I look at the patient and they're all modeled and I look at the labs. They're clearly not perfusing. You cannot assume that one means the other. And that may also happen in the other direction. You could be perfusing just fine, but some of your macrocirculatory numbers are not ideal. It's like, say, the liver patients. And they come in and they're kind of fine. Like they're mintating and they're peeing and they're texting on their phone and they're eating flaming hot Cheetos and they're fine. 
but their map's like, you know, 50, and their systolic's like 70, and then what we're going to do is spend a bunch of time chasing those macrocirculatory numbers, potentially making the tissue perfusion worse in the process, because it can also go the other direction depending on the patient, what is their baseline, and all kinds of other factors. So again, you cannot assume that these things are wedded to each other. Now, why am I talking about this in the context of sepsis and the context of fluids? So I think that we run into this problem a lot and we can get into this vicious cycle of fluid administration if we fail to have really wrapped our head around the concept that systemic hemodynamics and tissue perfusion may be different. So we start with a patient in distributive shock because let us all remember that sepsis is actually distributive shock, right? Your pipes are floppy and leaky. It's not that you're in hemorrhagic shock or usually not even hypovolemic shock. We start with some distributive shock. All right. So we start with distributive shock. And because that's what we do, we give a fluid bolus because that's just what we do these days. All right. Fluid bolus goes in. That's cool. And their blood pressure improves. We feel better. Yay. Happiness. Okay. But then over the next hour, maybe even faster, the fluid kind of leaks out of the vasculature. And there's a number of interesting studies on this, that even in normal healthy people, if you give a bunch of fluid, much of it, in fact, maybe most of it, leaks out of the vasculature and ends up in the interstitial space pretty quickly, like within hours. And that's in like normal people with normal blood vessels that aren't all inflamed and floppy and leaky. And so in patients who are SERSI, who are infected, who are in shock, who have ARDS, this is all the more true that you can put a bunch of fluid into their blood vessels, but it's not going to stay there. So some amount of this fluid leaks out into the vasculature and leaks out into the interstitium, which causes interstitial edema. Okay, so now we're getting all this interstitial edema, and that actually translates into edema of all kinds of organs that we don't necessarily want to be edematous. Now, the most obvious one is the lungs, right? That's the one that you're going to notice first because, you know, the patient can't breathe, and it's usually pretty noticeable. Patients get upset when they can't breathe. So we all know about that, that you can end up getting pulmonary edema. But what I think we think less about are you can get edema of everything else. You can get renal edema. You can get intestinal edema. And you know what renal edema will do? Drop your urine output. You know what intestinal edema can do if it gets bad enough? Is increase your intra-abdominal pressure. So both of these things can then cause oliguria. You drop your urine output. And then now, because all that fluid that was in the vasculature helping keep your pressure up has now leaked out of the vasculature, you get recurrent hypotension. So... What happens when we are called to the bedside and the nurse says, you know, the patient got a fluid bolus? They were doing great, but now they're having worsening urine output and recurrent hypotension. I think if you go to any hospital anywhere, probably nine times out of 10, the answer would be to check if they look intravascularly dry, and if they do, give them more fluids. However, that's kind of a problem because Yes, maybe this patient really does appear intravascularly dry. I mean, it's good that you even try and check, but just because they appear intravascularly dry doesn't necessarily mean that propagating what may be becoming a vicious cycle of fluids, 
causing, in fact, worsening tissue perfusion, which causes worsening organ dysfunction, worsening hypotension, worsening oliguria, causing you to give more fluids, and on and on and on. And especially when you add either the CMS sepsis metrics or overzealous interns into this vicious cycle, it really gets propagated. It's about to be July. We'll see. So... Point being is that, is this how this works in every single patient who is septic or hypotensive? Of course not. But the point is that you have to think about the fact that just because you get a transient improvement in blood pressure doesn't mean you actually did anything useful for the patient. And so as such, based on that, we actually need to add one last item to our list of incentive structures encouraging IV fluids, which the previous ones were structural, but this one is a mental one. This one is a cognitive one, which is fluid boluses often immediately improve the blood pressure. And we're standing there. We get a fluid bolus. We come back 15 minutes later. Blood pressure is better. And we're like, oh, great. I feel better. I did a good job. Pat on the back for me. I'm going to go off. The nurse isn't calling me. The blood pressure is better. We see it. It's right in front of our eyes. Wonderful. So this gives us a cognitive incentive structure that gets reinforced to give fluids. However, there's a couple caveats here. Caveat number one, the blood pressure improvement may be transient. Great. We improve the blood pressure until all the fluid leaks out into the interstitium. And then we do this all over again. Reference previous slide with previous vicious cycle. Caveat B. More importantly, getting a transient increase in the blood pressure doesn't necessarily equate to the idea that you have improved tissue perfusion by doing so. You might have, but you can't necessarily make that assumption. And so I think that we sort of like variables that are easy to measure, like the blood pressure, give fluids, blood pressure gets better, go team, pat on the back. But again, you can't necessarily assume that that in all patients means that you actually did anything other than making the number better. You may not have actually made the patient better. Okay, now we're going to talk about some fluid status physiology stuff. <laughs> 